Hello, my friends. Welcome to The Greg Crino Show. Welcome, everyone, to The Greg Crino Show, where we talk to experts and people with unique experiences so we can learn from them and apply those lessons to our lives. In today's episode, we have a very special guest. She was one of the initial cadre of female fighter pilots in the United States. Sharon Presler, call sign Betty. She was the first woman to fly the F-16 Fighting Falcon, otherwise known as the Viper. She was also the first woman to fly the Viper in combat and to become an F-16 instructor pilot. She can be reached at athenasvoiceusa.com, along with a lot of other powerful female aviators. So here she is, Sharon Presler. Welcome to the show, Sharon. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing well. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, good. Um, so uh, you have an extremely interesting background. I, I was reading through your bio, and you have a lot of firsts. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really amazing. First uh, female F-16 pilot, first uh, combat pilot as well, first combat fighter pilot, or first combat F-16? F-16 pilot, yeah. Okay, okay. So a lot of firsts. And I was watching some of your videos, and you had some a good, uh, a good uh, sort of summary of the good and the bad things about being first. And so, this will be sort of the theme of the show. I'm sure you, you get this a lot. But so, what are those good things? What are what are some goods and bads about being first? And how did you how did you manage that? Yeah. So. Um, I kind of figured out the goods and the bads looking back on it more than during the time, you know, to me, it's always been a double-edged sword because if you're the only woman in a squad or the only woman pilot on base, everybody knows who you are and everybody knows what you're doing. Right. And that can lead to a lot of extra pressure. Either you put it on yourself or other people put it on you. Um, but the good part is that everybody knows what you're doing. So if you do something well, Right. You know, if you're just a, a captain in a wing and you do something well, is the wing commander going to know about it? Maybe, maybe not. But if I do something good, well, everybody's going to know about it. No, they're going to know when I do something bad as well. But um, that's why I always thought of it kind of as a double edged sword. You just uh, you take the good with the bad, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I it would be a lot of pressure. I mean, I will admit for a guy like me, I blend in pretty well. Pretty much every every fighter pilot looks like me. And yeah. And I'll, I'll, I will say it is a little bit frustrating at times. I will say, I think when, um, in the early days when I was in, in the, like the late nineties was, was when I got in the, the fighter community, there were still some old hats. There still some old guys that would say, well, you know, women shouldn't be in the fighter community and guys that were my age were kind of like, oh, that's, that's really weird because it wasn't a big deal to us. Um, and I noticed that some of their frustrations of the older guys, they felt like the attention was on somebody else. I think that was what really the source of it was, was it more of a jealousy thing? They felt like, oh, you're being um, unfairly propped up and not looked at for your, your fighter pilot uh, skills. And they kind of resented that. What did you experience? Because you, you started in, I think, what was it? The 80s probably, right? Um, yeah, I got commissioned entered? in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, 86. I went to I imagine, training first. Yeah. Imagine back then it was even worse. I mean, how, how yeah, did you so deal with that? Kind of funny. I was in ROTC and... Um, I didn't even get to the, in that era, the detachments had their number of pilot slots and they gave them out to the cadets they wanted, except they weren't allowed to give them to any women because there were so many things women couldn't fly that they had to go meet a central selection board. So I got to meet a central selection board. There was 350 ish women that met it. And there was a, 
11 pilot slots and 20 navigator slots. So I got a navigator slot. At first I was disappointed because I wanted a pilot slot. And then I kind of looked at it and said, well, it's still better than sitting at a desk in a building. So I'll sit at a desk in an airplane and, uh, and see how that goes. Um, and I enjoyed it. I did, but it still wasn't what I wanted to do. So during my first assignment, I was a EC-135 navigator at Offit. And, uh, you know, it is when you're just a line pilot, you have free time. So I went and got my private pilot's license at a little local airport and kept applying for pilot training. And the second time I applied, they used to have these uh, cross training boards where they would specifically take existing Air Force officers and send them to pilot training. So I got picked up on the second one of those and I got to go to pilot training and I graduated from pilot training in April of 92. So it's already six years into my Air Force career before I finished pilot training. And then um, at that point, they still didn't let women in fighters. It was still against the law. So, but we had started the merit-based assignment system because we were, um, we had banked pilots at the time. I don't know if you heard about that, but. I did. Yeah. Yeah. They had hired too many pilots and they put them in the bank and yeah. yeah that, and, and then when I did. started, I was, I was pretty lucky. I, I commissioned in 97. And so they had, you know, they nah. were like, oh, and if you want to fly, you got it. It was very yeah. easy. We joke a lot about the pendulum, right? The pendulum swings and there's every once in a while it hits where it should be, but most of the time it's on the upswing or the downswing, it seems like. So anyway, they were doing merit assignment systems. So you went by, you know, rank order in your class and then by base and you went around and you picked your assignment from what was available. And somebody had actually called me a week before. So I was in the same uh, graduating class as Jeannie Flynn, now Jeannie Levitt. And somebody had called me and said, hey, are you going to try to pick a fighter? And I'm thinking to myself, well, no, I'm not allowed to do that, right? Because I'm a captain in the Air Force. I've been in six years. I'm kind of used to how it works. Well, I didn't know that there was people who were working behind the scenes to try to change that. So when I went to pick my assignment, I just jokingly uh, said to my main commanders, I'm so Captain Pressler, what would you like? And I said, well, I'll take that F-16 to be determined. And he gave me this, you know, colonel to captain kind of document. What would you really like? Oh, all right. Well, how about that C twenty one to Andrews? He asked you what you wanted. I mean, you gave the honest answer. Exactly. I told people um, I want the space shuttle. You know, yeah. am I going to get it? I don't know. Probably not. It was not the first time my sarcasm wasn't appreciated by yeah. the leadership. But <laughs> um, so I picked a C twenty one Andrews and I went off to Andrews and flew the Learjet. And it was uh, very interesting because I'd been advised to pick a major weapon system, right? Because I'm already. I'm a little behind getting a pilot training, so I should get a major weapon system, get myself settled and established. And basically the only major weapon systems that were available to me at the time was an AWACS or 135. Well, I didn't just work for a year to fly the airplane that I set sideways, and I wanted to do something different. So I chose what I wanted that was available, which was a C-21. And I went through the Learjet for only for a year because after I'd been there a few months, they changed the law and they... Um, I was very, very fortunate to be selected to be in that initial group of women fighter pilots. And the, the ironic or kind of funny thing about it is uh, one of the requirements for you to be selected was you had to have a fighter available when you graduated pilot training, but you also had to not be in a major weapon system because they, they, they could justify it by saying, well, the Air Force is going to have to retrain me in three years anyway. It doesn't matter if they retrain me after a year instead. So they can use that as one of their, it's not a special case kind of thing. So it was people that were in C-21s or uh, people that were IPs at pilot training, those kind of things who got selected. So I just always look back and thought it was funny that 
Um, me choosing what I wanted to do instead of what I should do helped me get the opportunity of a lifetime. Interesting. Yeah. That's, they always say like, make them tell you no. Yeah. You know, you gotta, if, if somebody asks you what you really want, then just put down what you really want and, and, and don't try to game it right. because uh, you might, you might get it. So, wow. Yeah. That's, that's, that's pretty cool. So then you went to F-16 train or you went to, so you, you flew the 38 first, I did. right? Yes. Was, we didn't, okay. they didn't have the T1 yet. It was just coming online at Reese. That's right. Okay. So you had already had sort of that fighter type of uh, background with the T-38 and then you went to F-16 training. Um, can you kind of walk us through just the initial, how did they receive you? And um, either the instructors or the leadership, did people take you aside ahead of time and say, Hey, you know, Sharon, this is how it's going to be. Or do they just kind of throw you in like they did with anybody else? Well, we kind of got to do, um, Jeannie Flynn, Martha McSally and I were in that initial press conference with General Peak that announced the change. And we did some uh, little media tour after that. Um, actually got to be on the Today Show and on the CNN show. And, and it was the questions that we were asked that gave me the first inclination that I was in for more than I thought I was. Right. Because the questions you're getting asked, well, how are you going to be received? And how do you plan to deal with the animosity from your fellow fighter pilots who don't think women should be there? And what do you plan to do about this and that? And I'm like, well, I hadn't thought about any of that. I just thought it'd be awesome to go fly an F-16. Right. I wasn't, I really wasn't trying to change anything as much as I was being an opportunity that a lot of Air Force pilots would jump at. And that's what I was doing. Um, so, yeah, it was obvious to me that it was going to be a mixed bag. Right. That there was going to be people there that, you know, those those Vietnam era pilots were all the sim and academic instructors at Luke when I got there for F-16 training. And, you know, they I'm sure they've been told to be on their best behavior, but best behavior for retired F-4 pilots might not be the same as it is for everybody <laughs> else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's even different now. Like, heck, guys that are even my age are probably wouldn't you know, fare too well in today's environment. I mean, it's, it's just, things change. So, yeah. yeah. I, I do remember that when I showed up to F-16 RTU, um, there was definitely even classmates that didn't want me there. And part of it was, I just don't think they wanted to deal with being in the class of the first woman going through. And part of it was, you know, you said you thought it was jealousy, but I think sometimes, especially for some of the, um, I don't know, some guys that I see invest a lot of them, themselves they are a fighter pilot and that's their entire being right and having a five foot four woman be able to do the same thing that you do somehow detracts from that does that make right. sense yeah you you invest you have a certain image of being a fighter pilot and then when somebody busts that image it it sort of damages your ego it's it's very difficult people have a hard time separating their career from their identity right. um I mean, it's, I think sometimes it can help you if you really care so much, it can really help you when you, that thing kind of becomes a part of you. It can help you do well, but you mentioned double-edged swords. I think that's sort of the double-edged sword as well is like, it makes you very vulnerable. And if somebody busts that identity or that archetype that you have, it can cause you to fail. So right. it's, it's hard. It's hard. How did you, how did you deal with them? I mean, cause I, I, I really envy, envy, or I, I'm very, um, respectful of your position because it's, I couldn't imagine going through an organization where some of the people didn't want me there. It's one thing if, and it doesn't have to be very many, like even if one or two people don't want me there, like that's enough to kind of throw me off my, my rocker. But you had probably a, a good 
third half. I don't know, whatever the number is, you can, you can tell us, but that's difficult. Yeah. Um, well, the instructors were, I mean, they weren't super open about it, but obviously some were more welcoming than others. Um, I remember getting called into, I was also, because of my time as a navigator, I was the class leader. I was the senior person in my F-16 RTU class. Oh, even better. <laughs> yeah. So, but when I got, pressure. Called, yeah, I got called into the squadron commander's office at the very beginning and he explained to me that he was reporting to uh, the four-star in charge of AETC about my performance every other week. And that, you know, and that he felt like he was under a lot of pressure having me in his squadron. <laughs> and I just remember sitting there going, uh, yeah, sir, you want to swap for a little bit? I might just be feeling a little bit of pressure as well. Right. Thanks for telling me that you have to report to the four-star about how I did on my flights last week. You know? Yeah. Um, but that's just, that's just what it came with, you know, it was a great opportunity, but there was going to be a cost to be paid for that opportunity. And, and, um, it was tough for me for a while. I'm a pretty social person. I get along with a lot of people. So I didn't, it was hard trying to find a way to fit in. And, um, the biggest lesson that I learned from all that was I just needed to quit worrying about what everybody said about me what everybody thought about me, right? I put so much pressure on myself. Like the whole future of women fighter pilots is riding on my shoulders. Well, no, it's not. I can't carry all that, right? I don't know anybody that can carry all that. So when I started struggling in training and that pressure started building, I just, um, I came to a point where I'm, okay, that is it. I am done. I'm going to focus on only what I can do, which is go fly the jet. People are going to say what they're going to say. They're going to do what they're going to do. I can't do any of that. Right. And if this works awesome. And if it doesn't, I'm going to leave here knowing I did the best I could. Right. And that's just going to have to be the way it is. Cause I don't know what else we could do at that point. Yeah. That's uh, that, that's hard. Um, because we care about what other people think because, you know, we're not sociopaths. <laughs> Most of us, <laughs> like if you totally did not care what other people thought you would be a psychopath or a sociopath. So it has to get in there a little bit. And I like what you said about it. You focused only on, on that job. And how long did it take to, to get better? Because, I mean, you don't have that much time in FTU before they start washing you out. I mean. No, I was pretty close one time. Definitely very, yeah. very close a couple times. Um, it got better. Once I, once I just made that commitment to doing the absolute best I could and, you know, you know, flying training is there's standards, but it's also subjective, right? Even though there's standards, it's subjective. So I'm like, well, if they really want to get rid of me, they're going to get rid of me. And if they want to keep me, they're going to keep me. And I, that is not my job to figure it out. My job is to go fly the jet the best I can every single day. Um, and there's a, there's an old saying that I used a lot for myself and I still do some days. And it's those who matter don't mind. And those who mind don't matter. And, and basically that was the people who cared about me and who knew me, my family, my husband, my friends, they all supported me. Right. I talked one of my T-38 instructor was an F-16 guy. And I talked to him before I went to RTU. He was super excited for me. So I focused on those people that I knew supported me. And then the rest of the people, I just went, well, you're going to, you're going to give me a chance or you're not. And you can, you're going to have to figure it out because I can't figure it out for you. It doesn't matter what I say, or in some cases, even what I do. Um, people are going to have to make up their own minds, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, I was also going through your videos and you had a good, 
a good statement about how you can help reluctant organizations to get through this and not lower standards. And because it seems to me there's sort of two types of people that would be hesitant to have somebody different in their organization. Um, number one is just the, the standard hater who just has it as part of their identity that this is what the archetype of a fighter pilot is or anything, whatever, whatever career you're in. And they're just jerks. But then you have the other half that are, they're kind of jerks, but they have, but their reasoning is they're just afraid of lowering the standard. And so if you can, if we don't lower the standard, they're like, oh, okay, well, that's fine. So how do, how do you, how do you lead organizations through that? Or how did you, how did you manage that, um, uh, that, that fear? Of, well, I, uh, yeah, so I did struggle some in training. I, talk, I want to talk to my flight commander and I basically told him, I go, if I am not meeting the standards, I don't want to be here. I don't want to kill myself. I don't want to hurt somebody else. I don't want to, you know, be in a squadron where somebody's trusting me to do my job and not be up to it. I said, but I can't worry about standards, right? I'm just a brand new student. I don't even know what the standards are really. I mean, they're written down, but what do they mean? Right. So we had an agreement and, it's, I struggled, but I made it through. And then when I got to Germany for my first uh, fighter, my first seen assignment was at a Spangdahlem Air Base in Germany. And it probably took about six months, maybe nine months to feel like I belonged there, right? To actually have some credibility in the jet, to have the majority of my squadron to go, yeah, you know, she just flies a good jet. It's okay. Right. And that was when I finally felt comfortable. And that whole process took, no kidding, about two years. Right. Wow. Yeah. Where I'm, I'm just plugging away, plugging away, plugging away, just doing the best I can. And then I get to that point where I'm, I'm actually just a respected member of the squadron like everybody else. And then it was just a matter of whenever we went somewhere. And then it was everybody got all weird again. Right. You go off to, to Maple Flag and people are looking at you like, what is she doing here? Why does she have your patches on? Oh, like other squadrons or other oh, yeah. countries? Yeah, there was, wow. uh, you showed yeah. the red flag, you know? That's true. I and mean, red flag is a tough crowd. <laughs> red flag's a tough crowd. I mean, I remember we went to, uh, we went to the Oak club on our first Friday there, you know, we're all here from Germany. We're all fired up. We're going to do red flag. We go to the Oak club and we're all in our flight suits. I had really, I had pretty short hair then, but not like super short, just short enough that I could get away with it. And, uh, and I go up to the bar to get a drink and the guy looks at me in my uniform with all my patches, like my little tactical call sign Betty and my silhouette of a Viper. And he's like, so what are you doing the 22nd? And I'm like, <laughs> uh, you know, cause yeah. all our patches and badges, if, if you're in the military, you know exactly what somebody does and where they belong by what they're wearing on their uniform. And I got asked that question so many times. I'm just like, really? Come on guys. Yeah, they probably glance over the wings. They don't see the bars on the shield. <laughs> and the, the, Yeah, yeah, they're waiting to see the some other badge on there. Yeah. Are you the new flight surgeon? I got asked that all the time. Yeah, out. that's that's true. So you have to <laughs> fight numerous battles. So you had to not only fight the one when you first got there, it was just a, a building process. Do you ever get to a point in your career where you kind of felt like, okay, the battle's over, or has it just continued? Oh, no, it's it, um, it continues, but it's not as much a battle it is. It's just, I got to the point where I just realized that it's just a stereotype, right? And people aren't trying to be insulting and they aren't trying to be rude and they're not trying to, I'll say, they're not trying to be ignorant even. But, you know, I had, even in my last assignment, I showed up to my new squadron at Shaw and the guy that was the training officer who must have known I was coming, when I walked into the squadron, no kidding, asked me if I was the new flight surgeon. I was, 
an 05 in uniform with my wings. And, and I'm like, dude, don't, aren't you expecting me? You know? <laughs> so wow. I just started, I got to the point where I just kind of laughed it off. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't feel like a battle anymore. I didn't feel like I had to fight it. I just kind of went, no, look again, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's tough. Um, how about uh, your combat or I'm sorry, let's, we'll kind of go in order here. So you became an instructor eventually, and then you went to, uh, then you had some combat time. Which one happened first? Yeah. The combat time was actually my first assignment to Germany. So I was still a wingman. Okay. Yeah. And it was, um, it was, I think it was operation provide comfort. Okay. And if you remember the no fly zone over Northern Iraq and we went to oh, yeah, yeah. insert the Turkey and we just flew over the no fly zone. And it's one of those things where it's combat time, but it was pretty peaceful combat time. Yeah. I had the same thing. I, I did Southern watch and I did OEF and I did a bunch. And yeah. Um, so yeah, there's sort of, you know, the major shoot and combat and then combat time, but still you have to prepare for that. And so what people don't realize is that when you go into, when you have like real combat, you have to wear your survival vest, you have to have a gun on, you have to have your ISO prep and all these other things. Um, were there different procedures or concerns? Uh, cause I know a lot of these answers, but a lot of my listeners will not. Were there any other concerns, additional concerns for a woman going into combat? Well, I just think in general, I mean, if you think about the part of the world we're flying over, right? I mean, even if F-16 is a single engine airplane, and even if I just lose an engine and I'll end up at some remote air base in Turkey, how's that going to be received? Right? Yeah. Probably probably not the best. I mean, so, so you, think, you think it's bad in a fighter squadron in the United States? Try a turkey yeah <laughs> in the 90s yeah so um i mean it's just something you had to deal with it's a commitment you made right you're gonna this is the job i signed up for this is what i'm gonna go do um but yeah i mean i definitely didn't want to end up behind enemy lines any more than anybody else did okay so there weren't like any additional procedures that they gave you uh, or any other concerns about being captured or anything like that no just just the general and i actually had to talk with it with some of the guys who talked about it because some of the guys in my squadron were more worried about it right yeah and I was like, look, you're going to just make things worse for me and harder for me if you treat me differently. So we'll just go out and we'll do our mission. All right. And if I end up in some kind of situation where I need help, I expect you to help me the same as you would everybody else. But no more than that. Right. Just I'm not the I do not want to be the focus. That's not going to be a good thing. And and they were pretty good about it. I, didn't, I never felt like I was um, being treated differently in those in that respect. Yeah. And you, and you had ejected, uh, well, I don't know if you ejected before or after that, but you had an injection in the F-16. Can you kind of tell us about that? I mean, sure, sure. That was, um, sure. so I went back to Luke after my assignment is, uh, it's been gone. And I went back to Luke as an instructor in the RTU. And, uh, it was funny cause I got so comfortable in Germany. Then I come back here and I'm like, Oh, Oh, I'm all in the spotlight again. Right. Cause there's like nine squadrons at Luke at the time when there's one woman instructor and that's it. So, um, but it was towards the end of my three-year assignment there. Uh, buddy and I went to an air show at Beale, just do static display, right? Low cross country on the weekend. I took a D model, of course, lucky me. And, uh, we're coming back the next on the Monday morning and I get out there and my, my jet won't start. It's got a battery issue. Well, the Hill demo team was there. They have fly F-16s and the maintenance mechanics at Luke had sent a battery with me. So I got those guys to come over and change my battery. Great. Logbook done. Start flying home. Well, in the F-16, you know, because we only have the one engine, <laughs> if you have a battery issue airborne, you fire the 
the EPU, the emergency power unit, because that will allow you to start your engine if it quits and your battery doesn't have enough power. You tell me when I'm getting too technical, but basically- No, no, go ahead, keep going. I started, I got a little battery light halfway home from, uh, you know, from Beale Air Force Base in North, Northern California back to Arizona. So I just get in the checklist. I do what I'm supposed to. I fire the EPU and I'm like looking at my EPU has hydrazine, which is hazardous. So there's certain procedures for that. And I'm reviewing those as we fly back. And the next thing I know, my I'm the wingman coming back and then my friend is he's like right there on my wing. And I'm like, what's going on? Right. Cause we were like a mile apart and he gives me the frequency and I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm there. No. And he's so sure enough, I'm Nordo. So I'm like, well, that's not so good. Why did that happen? You know, cause my engine's still running. My gener- main generator is still working. My standby generator hasn't even kicked in, but I have to have my emergency power unit online, which should power all this. So we just, you know, we have procedures for everything. So we do our standard Nordo arrival um, back. He declares an emergency for me, leads me in on a straight into land. And this, the deal is, you know, you pass the lead to your wingman when they're cleared to land. So we put our gear down and they go clunk, clunk, clunk. And I hear them. But no green lights. You know, we should get our little three green lights. Oh, no and just for, lights. just a real pause, real quick for people yeah. who don't know. Nordo means no radio. It means you cannot you. communicate. You cannot hear. So uh, Betty's out there just not hearing anything and just flying the airplane with a wing <laughs> just, the next to her. Yep. And uh, so I put the gear down and I get the clunk, 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 and but no green lights. And I test them and they light up. So it's not some magically all three bulbs have burned out at the same time. Um, so when my flight lead goes to give me the lead, I shake it off and I tell him no. And he gives me a thumbs up and I give him a thumbs down. I'm like, no, things aren't so great right now. Um, so he goes and he does the, the landing gear check. You know, he flies into my airplane, checks my gear, comes back to the other side, gives me a thumbs up. So he thinks that all three of my landing gear are down and locked. So I'm like, okay, that's good. Well, now, of course, we're not in a position to land from that straight in approach because we've leveled off while we were doing all this. So we go around and brings me back to land and I land in an F-16 aerobrake, which is you hold the nose off the runway just a little bit to help you slow down. And then when you lower the nose to the runway, you step on the brakes. And I step on the brakes and my feet just go right to the floor. Oh, no. Oh, like it in, was oh, it was this kind of ejection. Uh-huh. Oh, dear. It's, it's just like in the simulator that we practice so many times, right? So yeah. we have two channels of brakes. So I take my feet off the brakes. I put the brakes in the other channel. I put my feet back on the brakes and they go straight to the floor. And I'm like, well. That's not good. So the next thing you can do is turn the anti-skid off. That doesn't do anything. Um, so I put the hook down because we have a cable at the end of the runway at Luke and I can just take the cable and I put the hook down and there's a little light that should come on that says hook not locked and that light doesn't come on. I'm like, well, okay, but my landing gear lights aren't on either. So maybe my hook's down and I'll get the cable. But maybe it's not. <laughs> but maybe it's not. <laughs> so 70 knots into the runway, I missed the first cable. And the way that's set up at Luke, you have a like I think it's a thousand or two thousand feet before the end of the runway is the first cable. And then there's another cable at the end of the runway. And then there's the overrun. And then there's dirt and a fence and a drainage canal and a road. So I missed the first cable. I tried the parking brake as my last ditch effort. Let's blow the tires and see if we can stop this thing some other way, right? That doesn't work. So I missed the second cable. I'm halfway into the overrun and I'm like, all right, this is it. Out I go. And I pull the ejection handles because the F-16, when you look at it, it's, I think it's the coolest looking jet ever made. But in addition to that, it's got those little, we call them tricycle landing gear, right? Because they're small and they're close together. So it's, the airplane is not very stable on the ground. So 
We get taught from when we first start training, if you're departing a prepared surface greater than taxi speed, get out. Because the thing's going to flip, there's hydrazine, it can catch fire, oh, yeah. all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So I got out. <laughs> and it, it's, um, if you've ever had any kind of serious, serious emergency, a temporal distortion is, is a real thing. It's just amazing to me because I pulled that lever and it felt like it took forever. I'm sitting there waiting and then you can, you can like smell the cordite and you get the smoke billowing up by your feet and then you go up the rails, but that's 13 G's when you start up the rails. Wow. And how long does that take from the the pull to the actual? Oh, it's like 1.2 seconds or something, but it seems like about a half hour. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Well, especially when you're on the ground and you literally have maybe a hundred yards before this thing is going to tip over and kill you. Yeah. So, um, so when you first get that initial uh, shoot up the rails, you actually, I don't know if I haven't talked to other people, but I didn't see anything initially. You, you know, there's the G force is so great that you can't maintain the blood flow to your brain. Cause it's that 13 G onset. Um, okay. And then because I'm in a D model, the seats are designed. So the front seat goes to the right a little bit and the back seat goes to the left a little bit. So we don't tangle each other up. Well, I knew that that happened, but I thought if I was in solo, which is what I was in, that I would just go straight and I didn't. So while I'm not seeing anything, I know my seat is going a little bit to the right. And that's a little concerning because I'm on the ground and I want to get as far away from it as I can. Yeah. Yeah. But then the shoot opens and you get a good shoot. I'm looking and I start my, you know, parachute. Visor, max, yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah, That whole bit. Uh-huh. The, the standard thing we've been taught from the beginning. And, and I look down and my jet is just scooting across the ground. It was going so fast. So that distracts me. And of course I'm, you know, been 15 years since I did practice my parachute landing fall. So I land and my landing is not smooth. It's basically feet, but back of my head on the ground. Yeah. It's just a sack of potatoes. I'm <laughs> yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, I had some friends in the and they thought I bounced. They said I bounced. I don't know. Oh, they, but, um, they saw you. They, they, yeah. actually, wow. Yeah. Well, they're out in the tower probably. No, they were sitting, they were sitting in DR and oh. I'm running off the end of the runway right in front of them. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So awesome. I ended up in the, in the dirt, you know, to the side of the runway and my airplane, it actually was going faster. Somehow I think when I ejected, my checklist came off my leg and it pushed the throttle forward. And that thing was in mill power and it got airborne and, and launched itself. It took 300 feet of perimeter fence into the farmer's field across Northern Avenue. <laughs> the F-16 did? Yeah. So it actually continued on. The it, it went flying all by itself. Yeah. The checklist hits the throttles and then it keeps, oh my God. Yeah. So. Wow. So were you injured severely or was it just um, mostly bumps and bruises? I cracked my tailbone. Oh yeah, that hurts. Yeah. That hurts for a while. Yeah. Um, but other than that, no, I mean, it's just the, the adrenaline, right. And they're going to put you in the neck brace and go check everything out. And uh, it was funny because I tell people it was 11 days later when I was medically cleared to fly, I had to go look when I, when I applied at Southwest Airlines, they said, so have you ever crashed an airplane? Yes, I have. Oh, are you cleared to fly? And how long, you know, and I'm like, Oh, I better look that up. I don't know. <laughs> wow, 11 days. So did you feel like, you were ready. I mean, I, it's, uh, you were not. Yeah. Okay. So how, how did you, how did you get through that? I mean, I, very few of us have been through an ejection yeah. or a major disaster. I've only have a handful of friends who have done it. I mean, how did you manage? Well, it's just one of those things. Um, um, the way I got through it was I just thought about it. I tend to be a pretty logical person. Right. So I thought to myself, you know what, what are the chances this is ever going to happen again? They're pretty slim. How many people do you know that have ejected twice? Right. That's, that's just not going to be a thing. 
I can't think of any. Yeah. So but there's like, probably okay. some unlucky bastard out there's there. There's probably some. <laughs> I'm like, okay, so it's probably not going to happen again. That's good. And, and realistically, I mean, everything, the jet didn't do what it was supposed to do, but the seat worked, right? So that was good. And I just knew that if I didn't go back and fly, I was giving up something that not only that I love, but I had worked so hard, you know, to get where I was. I was five and a half years into this being an F-16 pilot and I was not going to give up everything that I'd gone through now to, to say, okay, I, I really don't want to do that. And, you know, fighter pilots, we're never, ever afraid of anything, right? Never. never. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> perfectly, perfectly honest people, never afraid of anything. <laughs> no hesitations. Yeah, exactly. So I basically just kind of talked myself into it. Um, Cause it was, I call it developing my courage. You know, it's, I wasn't willing to give it up. So it's, you got to make a choice, you know, what do you, if you're afraid of doing something and what happens, what's the cost if you don't do it, right? Because if you choose to listen to your fear, there's always going to be some kind of cost. Or are you going to choose to listen to uh, the courageous part of you that says, yes, you can do this. You've done it before. You can do it again. You know what? It's, it's going to be okay. You just need to go do it. And so I chose to do that. And then, but I wouldn't lie to you if I didn't tell you every, every time I stepped on the brakes for the next probably six months or so, I go, hmm, I wonder if they're going to work this time. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can I can imagine. Um, yeah, I've had a, a a couple of friends go go through an ejection. I I've always told people I felt safe as a kitten in the A10. Granted, we have two engines, but the ejection has always worked. I got an ejection seat. I mean, I feel safer in a fighter aircraft than I did in some of my my general aviation exploits, where you have no ejection seat and a single engine and and yeah. you can't just, you can't just glide it. You can't make, you know, not very high altitude. And so it can be a little more dangerous. Um, wow. So that was when you were an instructor or that was beforehand? No, I was an instructor. Okay, that's right. Then. You were, you were yeah. an instructor at that point. Okay. So we're kind of getting toward the, the end of the, your career then. And then, well, I had a, after instructor, I did school and staff and then I did one more assignment at Shaw. So, yeah. Okay. Okay. And then you, you finished up right around nine 11, you said, and uh, no, I was at, I was at NORAD during nine 11. That was my staff job. Okay. Yeah. So that was another interesting experience. Definitely. Yeah. So nine, I mean, this is quite, we're kind of bouncing topics here, but nine 11 at nor post nine 11 at NORAD. Um, and you kind of helped develop those plans for our reaction to, uh, terrorism, especially yeah. specifically through airliners. Um, what were we lacking at the point or at that point? Oh. How did you change it? Well, um, we had some plans which were in place, which were designed to, to just shut down the airspace system, which we did. If you remember yeah. that, yeah. that day, we basically grounded everything. Um, but what we didn't really have in place, which we decided we needed, which was sad because we always thought of um, terrorists using airplanes, to just hijack them. Right. We didn't think of them using them as bombs, which is essentially what they did. So we developed the procedures and the, the rules of engagement to actually shoot down a civilian airliner. Oh my Lord. Can yeah. you talk about that or is that classified? Um, as I will just tell you that it takes a lot of wickets before that's going to happen. And it's yeah. going to be at a very, very, very high level. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, I yeah, mean, I, it's not going to be left to the, to the captain flying the jet. That's for sure. Yeah. I can imagine. Um, it's a, f I have an interesting story about nine 11. My squadron of a tens was coming back from a deployment to, from operation Southern watch. They're coming back from, across the Atlantic into Massachusetts on 9-11. And the, uh, 
the the tanker or the F-15s that had reacted or had been scrambled had to take gas from the tanker that my buddies were on. Um, and I think my the last of the six ship was on final approach and approach was asking if anybody could go investigate a crash in Pennsylvania. So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were there on that on that day and they heard everything getting shut down and all yeah. the airliners being diverted. So pretty crazy day. I was actually in Arizona at the time. I didn't deploy, but I was in that A-10 squadron. So it was uh, yeah, we were pretty crazy. So we were actually um, in the middle of a, just a regular exercise for us. So we were in Cheyenne Mountain. Normally, we did our normal staff jobs in an office building, right, on Peterson Air Force Base. And when we had exercises or something going on, we'd go to Cheyenne Mountain, the big, you know, cave with the blast doors. And so they actually closed the blast doors for the first time for a real emergency in the history of Cheyenne Mountain was there. We're all closed in. Now, we, you know, we're trying to. Yeah. Just trying to handle what was going on and get a grasp on. It was a crazy day. Yeah, that was uh, definitely a crazy day. Um, seems like craziness is kind of a, a theme. <laughs> it's been a theme lately. Um, so then you you retired at that point. You retired as an 05, is that correct? I retired as an 05. I did one more okay. assignment at Shaw. So I, I went back okay. to Lube for a little transition course. Okay. I remember how to fly the F-16 and then off to Shaw for three years. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then that, was that a, a flying assignment at Shaw? Yes. Yeah, I was actually... Yeah, I, was, I ended up as a DO of the, the 79th Fighter Squadron, the Tigers there. Okay. Yeah. We had a little, I had, um, so when I talk to people, I, I do some coaching about goals and setting goals. And one of the things I tell people is that you have to be okay with changing your goals, right? You don't, don't marry yourself to a goal and continue down that path. If it's not the right thing for you anymore. And that's kind of what happened to me when we were at Shaw. I always, I wanted to be a fighter squadron commander. That's what I wanted to do. Right. This is the path I wanted to be on. Um, my name was in the hat for maybe going to Korea. It was in the hat somewhere. You know, there's these things going on. Uh, a month or two after we got to Shaw, my sweet little almost three-year-old boy got leukemia. Oh, no. Yeah. So he's perfectly healthy and fine now. He's sophomore at U of A. And, uh, but at the time, that meant chemotherapy and, you know, hair yeah. falling out and not a regular life. So... Um, I basically went and said, I don't, Yeah, I, you got to take me out of going to Korea. I don't want to do it. Yeah. And I don't know if I ever would have got that job. I'm not saying I would have, but I basically went to my own commander and said, yes, sir. I don't want to be a, com- I don't want to be a squadron commander because I just couldn't be across the world, you know, while my son's battling cancer. Yeah. See? That makes sense. That makes sense. It's yeah. It's some, you're right. Things change and you, your goals, uh, probably should change uh, based on that. And that's okay. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was at the time, you know, um, you wouldn't think that anything good could come from your son battling cancer, but it did. We have, we are a very close knit family. We have a lot of good things and I have a lot of good uh, perspective and realization of what's important to me without a lot of the cost that often goes with that. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that's tough. I I have a few friends and family who've battled cancer. Um, some who are doing that right now. So yeah, it's uh, it's tough, and it takes a lot of uh, courage on that person's part. It takes family members helping. Um, and sometimes you do. You have to you have to drop what you're doing right now to go help that person, and and that's okay. So yeah, yeah that's. Wow. So then, uh, so then after that, you got into Southwest Airlines, and I, I I saw a funny story again on your on your bio where you've had people 
not sure they should fly on your airplane. Can you tell us about that story? That, that's yeah, sure. hilarious because now sure. we're into the 2000s at this point and, so, and then somebody actually was not, they were hesitant to fly on an airplane with a female uh, captain or pilot. Yeah. And this, and the, the funniest one, I was just a first officer, but um, it was this uh, crusty Vietnam era vet. And I, I can say that because my dad was one, but <laughs> <laughs> he, I'm sitting there doing my stuff, you know, between flights and the flight attendant sticks her head up and she goes, Hey, Sharon, this, this pastor wants to talk to you. And I turn around and look at him and he's sitting in the scene. He's crooking his finger at me like, Hey, come here. And I'm like, all right. So I go back there and, and no kidding. He looks at me and goes, so, what are your, what are your qualifications to fly this airplane? <laughs> oh no. And I'm thinking to myself, first of all, I really just want to tell you something I'll probably get in a lot of trouble for. So I won't do that. Um, I said, I go, cause he's got his Vietnam vet hat on. And I go, I go, well, sir, to start with, I spent 20 years flying in your United States air force. Ooh, that's oh really? Good. What, what did you fly <laughs> in there? I said, I was a navigator. I flew Lear jets. And then I spent about 10 years flying the F-16. Really? Yeah. <laughs> How long have you been here? I said, just a couple of years now. I was like, okay. And I went back up and went back to work. And I was like, really, dude? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but I have one, especially uh, when I was a captain and I had a woman first officer. I got to do that a couple of times. There's just two of us up front, right? And I'm standing up front greeting people. And and one of the guys, he's he's younger than me. He's probably in his 40s. He's like, he just starts getting on airplanes. Wait, are, are you the captain? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, who's your first officer? And I said, oh, it's Jen. She's up there doing, you know, programming around. He's like, but there's there's two two women flying? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are. This guy's in his 40s? Yeah. And, oh, he's man. Like, and he's like starting to get all worried. I go, I go, sir, I'll tell you what. I said, if you want to step aside and let everybody else keep boarding, we can chat about it. But I guarantee you that Jen and I are flying to, I think it was San Jose. We're flying to San Jose. You're welcome to come along with us. Or you can take the next one. I said, the chances of there being two women pilots on the next Jet going to San Jose, that's really, really small. <laughs> <laughs> Did he just kind of look at you and then head back? In, yeah, in he just back? looked at us and went, went, yeah. went got in and sat down. We were like, oh, well, goodness gracious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's people got to remember that we're, well, other than the, the, you know, the remark that he made, people always get concerned about the pilot. Do they really know what they're doing? I'm like, uh, yeah. we're on the airplane too. Like, we don't want to die. Like, it's all, just remember that the pilot also wants to live. Yes. They're also a human being. Yes. And yes, you have to even to even get on a major airline or become a pilot for a major airline, you have to fly for at least 10 years professionally. You have a lot of I mean, experience. Yeah, you have to have a lot of experience. You're vetted by so many people. Um, and even in pilot training, you have to be vetted by so many different instructors. And it's just it's rare for just somebody to slip through the cracks that's not that's not qualified. So but it's wow. it's funny, that same double-edged sword you talked we talked about at the beginning, right? Yeah. But the same token, and, and I talked to other women pilots, and we all love it when some woman comes up and says, oh, can my daughter come talk to you? Because she might want to be a pilot, right? So there's that same, you stand out. But you stand out for yeah. people who maybe don't want you to be there, but you also stand out for people who appreciate you being there that you can be a role model for. So you just kind of, once again, take the take the good with the bad. Yeah, and I, I try to do that with, um, with kids as well. Um, obviously, I'm a, a man. I, I don't have the same impact on on little girls as, as you would. Um, but I'm very careful to, if a little girl is interested and she looks up there and she's kind of hesitant, I'm always like, Hey, come on up, come on up. I try to really encourage yeah. them and I ask them what they want to do. I'm like, Hey, do you want to be a pilot? So I, I try to 
normalize that career path in their mind. So they're not like, I'm not asking, Hey, do you want to be a flight attendant? You know, yeah. it's, it's, I try not to, I always ask people, um, what, you know, if they're, if they're looking at something and they're interested in it, ask them, do you want to do that? And, and try not to stereotype the roles. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Cause it was yeah, my very first airplane ride that I decided I wanted to be a pilot. I was only like four years old. It's like 1969. I don't think there were probably women pilots then, but that's I just so thought funny. it was the most magical thing. Well, and that's another interesting topic is I always ask people, when did you know you wanted to be a fighter pilot? And almost everybody says the same thing that it was way when they were young. It's almost like your sexuality or something. You don't really decide, like it just kind of happens. You don't ever know not being that. And and so for me, it was probably about that age. I was probably five years old. And I I tell people it was when I saw Star Wars, but I think it would have happened regardless. I think just the fact that you look up in the sky and you see things flying and you just imagine being up there and not down here, it's just something that was innate. So it was sort of the same for you. You were a little girl and you just always felt that way. Yeah, we, well, we went on a, my mom was, I told you my dad was a Vietnam vet and my mom was born yeah. and raised in England. So when he was going to Thailand for the Vietnam War, we went home to England to live with her parents. And this was a long flight across the Atlantic and they took us up to the cockpit, you know, cause you could do that in flight back then and uh, opened up the cockpit door and it's, you know, we're 35,000 feet over moonless Atlantic ocean. You know how many stars and how brilliant and amazing that looks. Yeah, and beautiful. I was just this little girl going, Oh my gosh. You know, and that was it. That's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, I think it was, uh, yes. Samantha, uh, weeks had said the same thing. She was on a flight back when she was a little girl and got to see the, the, the cockpit of the, of the airplane and, and just knew way back then that's what she wanted to do. And even then I think somebody had, it might've been her dad actually that had said that, well, you know, women can't do this job. And she's like, I don't care. I'm going to do this one day yeah. and, and see I was mine was a whole different thing I went running back to my mom you know I'm four and I'm like mommy I want to be a flight I want to be a stewardess right because that's what women were called back then yeah and my mom she goes oh that's nice honey do you think you might want to be a pilot oh your mom said that to you yeah my mom said that to me and I'm like oh those people up front I could do that yeah yeah I want to do that right so that was the change for me who knows I might have been a flight attendant that wasn't for mom <laughs> well I'm glad you're an F-16 pilot and yeah, eventually at Southwest as well <laughs> Yeah. Actually, I um, so I'm at, I'm at United, so we kind of have followed the same uh, path and way A tens than United. But yep. um, do you have any, uh, I guess, book recommendations that for people that that are, you know, young women or people uh, sort of wanting to become pilots or 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 go down that career? Do you have like uh, any sort of recommendations as far as research they could do ahead of time to kind of help them? Yeah. Well, I really loved them. I didn't know about the wasps and their story until I had graduated pilot training. So on silver wings is a great book about the wasps, which shows you some history and, and some of the amazing attitude of those women in the forties who were, who were flying airplanes. And uh, I would recommend that to any person who wants to fly just cause you can, you can learn a lot from, from that, from their experiences. Um, and then the other thing I would do is I would say, get out and get in an airplane. So introduction flights at any general aviation place are relatively cheap, like under a hundred bucks. You can just go out for a little introduction flight. You don't have to go and continue doing lessons and getting your private license and all that, if that's not what you want to do, but it'll just help um, keep that spark going. That that's really something you, that you think you will enjoy. You know? Right. Yeah. I think um, definitely doing the thing that you think you want to dedicate a career to, whether definitely flying, I, I tell people, 
you, you gotta, you can read all about it, but if you're not out there actually experiencing it, you're not going to really going to know. I mean, you can imagine it, but I, I, it was a little bit tough for me. Like I did a little bit of Cessna flying before uh, pilot training. Uh, fortunately, I was at Edwards Air Force Base where I can get some backseat rides in a T-38. So that, that really helped. But I remember my very first flight in a T-38 um, was before all that. I got an incentive ride. I think it was at the Academy, actually. I got an incentive ride. And man, I, I thought I was going to puke. I had the, with the, the helmet on, the, all the equipment on, the fumes of the, of the fuel. I was this close to, to puking. And I thought I, I couldn't do it. But I eventually got over it. And, um, you know, you just kind of keep pushing forward. And, and it worked out. So. Yeah, my, my first flight was a T-37 flight in ROTC field training. You know, they took us off. Okay. We rode over to 130 to... Yeah. I think it was Reese, which is funny because that's right to pod training. And we got to fly into T-37 and that thing can pull what, six Gs, six and a half Gs, something like it's that. It's up there. Yeah. And it's yeah. a high G onset too. You can black out on that. Yeah. And it was summer, right? And yeah. I just, we, we pulled so many Gs. We just, I just absolutely loved it. We came back and the instructor pilot was telling me, I was trying to get her sick. She wasn't getting sick. We're just, it was like, I could have been in a happier place. <laughs> well, another thing people don't realize is that to handle g-forces it helps to be a little shorter and and a lot of times women are built better for high g-forces uh, people are surprised when i when i tell them that but i'm like a really tall lanky guy is probably the worst for for g-forces you want somebody who's kind of short um and so you know bigger legs all those physical characteristics really help and so in some ways um women can can even be more suited to to flying so um but yeah, that's that's pretty cool. So now you're at Athena's Voice USA. Yes. And um, so, what sort of projects are you guys doing, and what's what's coming up here in the near future? So I have I have two speech two keynote speeches that I give, and one is uh, called "Debrief Your Life, Live Better," which is basically trying to encourage people to apply fighter pilot debrief techniques to their everyday life and learn some lessons. And I do that by going through some of the experiences I had in, in F-16 and, and demonstrating that. And then the other one is um, called a Inclusion, Everyone, All the Time. And, and I kind of wrote that because when I talk to, you know, we have a little women's fighter pilot network going on. And when I talk to some of the women who are in now, there's what they found is that um, when we go to if you go to a squadron that hasn't had a woman in it for a long time, because there's still not very many women fighter pilots, there's often been some backsliding into some of that more locker room like behavior that was there in the nineties. So the, the, the person that's different comes in and the other people kind of resent her a little bit because they're having to change. Right. Whereas if you just keep an environment that's professional and would make everyone feel welcome on a regular basis, then you don't have to change for people. So that's, and, and it talks about the different roles of, of leadership and, and what I call the majority group and then the minority group and what we can all do to, to work together better and really build the best team. So um, on, on that theme, um, what are some things that, that we can, so I'll kind of lay the groundwork here. Um, so in a fighter pilot, it's mostly guys, there's the locker room talk. Um, you know, what, what, what can they do? What can that squadron do to maintain uh, an inclusive environment uh, in times when people who are different are not there. Um, so is it just a matter of keeping your language clean or is it, 
are there other things that they can do? It's not just language so much. It's just more attitudes. Okay. Right. So you can tell in a squadron a lot when you look at how the, how the pilots treat the NCOs in the squadron or the person working at the ops desk or the, you know. Oh, that's good. That's a good point. Yeah. Right. That It doesn't have to be a woman pilot, but you often have women NCOs in life support or somewhere like that. And if you just continue treating them in a professional way, then chances are when you get a woman pilot and you'll treat her professionally as well. Oh, that's, a, that's actually a really interesting point. So there are other people, there are other ways to maintain that. Um, yeah. Type so you have like a, a hierarchy in a squad. There's always going to be an enlisted people doing working behind the desk and in life support. And so you're saying a squadron that pays attention to them will be naturally more predisposed to uh, include somebody else who happens to be different to jump in that squadron. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then the other thing I I really think is important is uh for the people that are in the majority group to remember that it takes a while for that person that's in the minority group to find their voice, right? You can't walk into a squadron. Like if I would have showed up at Spengdalen, Germany, brand new out of F-16 training and told everybody all the changes they needed to make because I was there, that wouldn't have gone over so well. <laughs> no, it would not. <laughs> no, it would not have, right? So you don't do that. But then at some point, you know, somebody in the, in the majority group needs to speak up and go, hey, why don't you just give her a chance? Or, hey, actually, I flew with Betty today. She flies a good jet, right? Something where it's not it's too difficult to make the minority person always be the one enforcing the standards, right? It puts too much burden on us and it makes it even less comfortable. So it helps when the majority, um, someone from the majority group jumps in because they have more credibility right. initially. And then I reverse that and put the same burden, if you will, on the members of the minority group. Don't assume that because someone's not treating you well that day, it's because of whatever it is that makes you different, Right. They could just be having a bad day. That happens. Yeah, I, I like how you're. I like how you're approaching that. That there's a majority group, and minority group, and that could be really anything. That that doesn't have to be race and sex. It could be. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be rank. Mm -hmm. um, it could be. Uh, shoot, I don't know. Class. It could be nationality. It could, it could be any sort of. You know, it could be height. <laughs> I don't. Who knows? Yeah. It could be anything. Um, and that each members of each group have certain responsibilities. And so if you're in the majority, like you said, if the minority person is doing something well, let the rest of the majority know that. And then if you're in the minority, realize that people are not out there to get you. A lot of times people are just, they don't know, or they, they're, they're probably equally as nervous as you are. They just don't, they haven't been presented with the situation before. So maybe realize that as well. And then if we each realize that we have something to gain and lose, and we're both having to change, then it maybe kind of helps us take the temperature down a little bit. Yes. And okay. I would, and I worked hard to always give people the benefit of the doubt, you know, and there's, there's military examples as well, but like that grumpy old pastor, hey, come here, tell me how you're, why are you qualified to fly this airplane? Right. Yeah. He doesn't mean to be insulting. He really doesn't. He just doesn't even understand how insulting he's being. So the intent behind it is just, he's nervous and he's trying to calm his nerves. Right. So I try always try to give people the benefit of the doubt and see their intent as more innocently than how you could see it other ways. Um, and you're still going to run across those people who you need to just say they need to straighten up. You know, yeah. there's always going to be those people, but the majority of people are just sometimes don't even realize what they're doing. Yeah, that's good. I, I like, I like your approach to that. And then the other one is, do you said debrief your life is another one? Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so kind of tell us about that because the fighter pilot debrief, we have our objectives and then we go right? through each objective and so can you yeah. kind of walk us through that a little bit? Yeah. So the concept is that you take something pivotal that happens in your life and you, you sit back and you analyze it. Right. And you find mistakes you've made and things you've done well. Right. You can find the root causes, especially of your mistakes and say, okay, that's the root cause of that. Now, if I'm presented with this situation again, what am I going to do differently? So I handle it better. Right. It's just pulling lessons learned from your life. Like we do from our flights, but it takes time to go back and analyze it. And you have to look at the things that you have control over, right? So if, if it's a mistake, it has to be your mistake. You have to own it, you know, just like fighter pilots do. Yep, I totally screwed that up. That's my bad. Now, what am I going to do about it next time? It can't be, well, so-and-so didn't treat me well, so then I did this. Well, your reaction is your mistake, right? It's your responsibility, how you respond to people. Mm-hmm. So it's it takes a little bit of time, but you can you can do it with um, with anything. I mean, so I... I did it with, there's so many, it's like the, the guys at the, at the Nelson club that kept asking me, what do you do on the 22nd? Right. Well, what am I going to do about it? I'm going to get mad and start yelling at the guy, or I'm going to get, feel like he's being insulting, or I'm going to do those things where I'm going to go, you know, some people you just can't fix. And I'm just going to let them not worry about it. I'm going to focus on my job because I'm a red flag and I'm a wingman. And I want to, you know, my squadron trusts me to do certain things and that's what I'm going to focus on. I'm going to let this stuff go away because it's just not that important to me. Yeah, that's, that's good. So when, when do these come out? Are they no, coming out in the near future? No, I'm, I'm doing i I've, I'm doing the uh, uh, debrief your life one for ROTC uh, detachment in uh, early March. Okay. Is uh, the virtual one for that. And then, we thought we were going to do the other one in February, but those guys canceled out. So we'll see how we can get that one going. Okay. Cool. I had to have one group that wants me to come out, but they want me to come in person. So we're waiting for that to open up again. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, so, so last, last question. Um, how did you get the name Betty? How'd you get the call sign Betty? <laughs> I mean, I think I know the answer, but I want to hear it from you. Yeah. So, um, there's a voice management system in every airplane, right. That does, that tells you when you're doing stuff wrong and, and uh, a friend of mine, when I was in RTU, one of the one of the guys that I was close to, said, "Oh, you need to imitate that voice over the radio." And I'm like, "No way, dude! Not doing it. I don't need any more pressure, right?" But then when I got to Spangal and when I was uh, we we're doing a a basic fighter maneuvers air to air fight against uh, one of the guys in my squadron who was the weapons officer at the time. So I figured I'd try it because, you know, and I'm sure they tend to do it similarly, but we set a artificial floor, right? Let's say it's 10,000 feet. And if I descend below 10,000 feet, then we've simulated that I've crashed into the ground. So in the F-16, you would normally set your floor about 1,500 feet above that. And then the, the bitch and Betty would come on and go, altitude, altitude. That's pretty right? good. Yeah, pretty good. I practiced. <laughs> and you transition to this more level fight, right? Because you knew the person behind you couldn't go low and get energy from going low. So you transition to level flight, and then you'd be kind of stuck there for a while. Well, so I did that earlier than 1,500 feet. I did it over the radio, over the Victor radio, like 3,000 feet above the floor. So sure enough, the guy transitions, and I just dip down and bring my nose up oh, and get nice. a good shot. <laughs> so you kind of you kind of tricked him then. I cheated. Yeah, oh, definitely. you know, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. <laughs> That's the last, that's the last lesson of the day right there. It was so funny though. He was so mad at me. Oh, he was so mad. And I'm like, <laughs> that's true. Wow. That's man. You could see you have, you have little weapons. If you're, if you're 
if you're a woman in a in a male dominated environment, you ha- you just have to know where your weapons are and just exploit them. But you have certain weapons, <laughs> and I have not thought of that. But that is fantastic. Yeah, That's I only really did it good. the one time. Oh man, it so was, I'd be doing it all the time. It was funny. <laughs> Yeah, we had to imitate different voices and stuff in the in the hog. We played JTAX on the ground. And oh, yeah. So yeah. The, the really good ones, the really good guys would have all the sorts of different accents. Um, and they would, you know, even guys would would take up tape recorders and play gunfire into their <laughs> into their mass so that it sounded like. And there were some students that got tricked. They're like, oh my God, like what was going on down there? It's like, no, that was me the whole time, dude. And, yeah. So wow, that's, that's funny. Fun. So that was uh, but usually you get your call sign early in your career. You said that was that was my first, that was first assignment at F-16. It was our first oh. uh, deployment into um, Dutchie Mamano in Italy. We were out there. Okay. So you were not doing this instructionally. You were doing this on oh, no, a no. normal flight. Yeah. This was just, uh, I was, oh. I was like still not even mission ready yet. I was just. Yeah. You were just, you were just sharing at that point. That's, <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. So for the people who are listening, yeah, the every, every fighter pilot or every fighter cockpit has a an altitude warning horn that is a female voice for some reason i don't know why um and i think word has it that that lady i think just died recently she worked for like mcdonald douglas or something like that so yeah i heard that 85 or 90 years old yeah that was that was the original bitch and betty and then <laughs> and then you got this one yeah it's it's funny i, I was frag i got mine for almost blowing myself up in korea <laughs> uh, dropping bombs way lower than i should have been and um, i did not frag myself so i got lucky yeah Anyway, but yeah, the call signs are fun. Um, so anyway, but anything else you want to talk about before we sign off? I know we're getting a little low on time, but any other messages for, for young people or for, um, for women in male-dominated environments and anything else you want to throw out? I would just say that in general, I mean, you said earlier, make them tell you no, right? If you have something you want to do in your life, I don't care who you are or what you think you can or can't do, at least give it a try, right? And when someone tells you no, don't listen to them. Say, really, why not? Um, what if I go this way? What if I do this instead? What if I try to code up? What if I come back with more experience? You know, there's no just definite no. There's always a way around it. So just keep trying to do what you want to do. I like that. So make them tell you no. And then when they do tell you no, keep going and ask why. <laughs> yeah. That's true. That's true. Wow. So so Sharon Pressler, uh, a.k.a. Betty, thanks so much for coming on the Great Carino Show. Um, I'm, you're, I learned so much and I'm sure you're... You're going to inspire many more uh, young women and and guys as well to become fighter pilots or, or do whatever else they, they want to do. So uh, thanks so much. I, I learned a lot. So I, I appreciate you coming on the show. Well, thanks, Greg. I enjoyed it. Appreciate it. How can people get a hold of you just so I can get that in there? Yes, there's AthenasVoiceUSA.com, but there's also probably in the next week, it'll be up SharonPressler.com. I'm just got my own website going as well. SharonPressler.com and AthenasVoiceUSA.com. Awesome. All right, Sharon, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, We'll talk to you soon, okay? All right, thanks, Greg. All right, have a great day. Take care. You too. Thank you for listening, everyone. Please follow The Great Carino Show on all the major social media sites. And remember to like and share the post with your friends. Also, please leave a five-star rating with a friendly comment on your podcast app because it really helps us get the big guests. Finally, if you have a show idea or you'd like to be on the show, please email us at greggreenoshow at gmail.com. Take care and see you on the next episode.